I think it's time for the sermon now, so please take a seat. Well, as you might expect, leading up to this, my first sermon here at Christ the King Grace, I felt a bit of pressure. I took that pressure to the Lord last night. I said, Lord, I feel pressure. I don't want to disappoint these good people. What should I do to handle this? Give me some instruction. And the Lord said to me, what you need to do, Roger, is raise the stakes. That's how to deal with it. And I said, what do you mean, God? And he said, preach for me. Do the sermon for me and for me alone. And I said, all right, I'll do it for you and for you alone. Bingo, said God. And that, my dear people, is how I've come in this morning without giving a lick about what you think of my sermon. <laughs> in all seriousness, I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to be standing here in the preacher's perch for the first time. And uh, in the time that we've got for the next little while, I want to reflect on what is arguably the most central or most foundational reason for this gathering, for the existence of the church. And what is that? It is that we might, each one of us, be followers of Christ, disciples of Jesus. That's what I want to think about, and it is something that I'll be coming back to time and time again in the months and years ahead. But before I say more, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our guide, may your spirit be our teacher, and may your greater glory be our supreme concern. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Discipleship, that is the major theme of Luke chapter 6, certainly from verse 12 onwards. And what Jesus says about what it means to be an authentic follower of his, he's been inviting lots of people to do that now, it culminates in the passage I've just read for you. And it's safe to say that what our Lord communicates in those words takes the fuzziness out of that word disciple. A lot of people these days are fuzzy about what that word means. I think a lot of people think that the job of the church is to make Christians. And they think of Christians as people who hold certain beliefs, particularly certain beliefs about Jesus. And they think that as long as a person mentally affirms the right beliefs about Jesus, they get to be forgiven and they have to be allowed into heaven when they die. And that's the difference between a Christian and somebody who's not a Christian. The problem is this. When we think this way, we never deal with the fundamental choice, which is, do I actually intend to do everything this man Jesus taught? Do I intend to follow him fully and wholeheartedly? Jesus never said, become a Christian to anybody. The word Christian is actually used in the Bible only three times, and it's a nickname for those who cast their lot with Jesus. In contrast, the word disciple is used 269 times in the Bible. And that word disciple refers to a learner or a student. It refers to an apprentice or a follower. There's no fuzziness. There's nothing mysterious about it. Consider, if you are a learner or an apprentice, then you know it. If you want to learn how to play pickleball, if you want to learn how to speak gullah, if you want to learn to do cardiovascular surgery, then you become a student of somebody through classes or YouTube videos or a book, and you know if you're doing it or not. If somebody says, hey, are you learning to do heart surgery? Nobody says, well, I'm not sure. Let me think about that, maybe. They don't say that. You might not be a good student of cardiology, but you know if you're a student or not a student. And so too with being a disciple. Am I one? It's a yes or no question. And the answer to this question, based on what Jesus teaches today, is based on two key criteria. What are those criteria? First, the authentic disciple doesn't just hear Jesus' teaching. She acts on it. She obeys it. 
And second, the authentic disciple doesn't merely obey externally as a matter of duty, but they obey from the heart. I want to unpack those two key criteria in turn. So that first criterion comes out in the little parable there in verse 46 through 49. In, this, in starting out this story, Jesus makes a pretty arresting statement. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now that's very insistent, isn't it? This is, this is somebody who's very passionate as they recite the creed and sing the songs. They never miss a Sunday. But Jesus is effectively saying, that counts for nothing if you don't do what I say. In other words, what we do, our outward lives, our conduct, our ethics, that matters very much to God. I once read about the funeral of a notorious gangster. This was a guy who had, for the majority of his adult years, been a leader in that dark and generally recession-proof sector of the economy. And moreover, this guy was an active gangster when he died. In fact, he was killed in a brawl with another crew. And at his funeral, the minister said, the minister said something striking. He said, I am sure that the deceased is now with Jesus because I remember when he was a young man of 10, he came to one of my summer camps and he gave his life to Jesus and so I just know he's with the Lord today. Now, it's not for me to say who is or who isn't right with God. Only God can know that. And we certainly know that even if we're earnest Christians, men and women who deep down adore Jesus, we can wander from him and do terrible, sometimes ungodly things. But nonetheless, if we keep on wandering from the Lord, if we live a lifestyle of persistent sin, a lifestyle devoid of any repentance, it's a pretty sure sign that things aren't right with God. Oh, I'll still sin, but if I'm not making any attempt to stop sinning, there's little basis, little basis for assurance to be given. I'm not ready for that divine inspection when the Maker looks at my life and looks for signs of authentic discipleship. Now, in driving home this point, Jesus introduces us to two home builders. Let's call them Thomas and Toby. Thomas, there in verse 48, he digs deep down and lays his foundation in the rock. For weeks, there's no sign of his house. He just digs down and down and down. The cement truck comes and pours and pours and pours. He is determined to build his house on a strong foundation. Tony is very different. If you look up Tony in the yellow pages, he will appear under the builder section, but don't you think he's a builder? He's had no training. And he builds his house, verse 49, without a good foundation, in fact, without any foundation. Just like Thomas, Tony's been dreaming of his perfect home, and he's finally got the funding secure, he's got the planning permission secured, but he can't bother to build down. He wants to build up. Let's get that mansion erected as quickly as possible. No doubt Tony thought that Thomas over there, doing diligent foundation, was completely wasting his time. Nobody's going to see that foundation. What a foolish man. As long as I get my walls up and my roof on, I'm going to be snug and safe. That's what Tony was saying to himself. But then there was a flood. And now it's Thomas who has his feet up because he knows his foundations are strong. And Tony, well, he's putting out sandbags as quickly as he can, but it's too little and it's too late. And so starting with his garage, all of the rooms in his house get submerged in the torrents of water. The whole house begins to disintegrate, and everything that he has, all of his precious possessions, are swept away with the flood. Now, in verse 47, Jesus tells us exactly what this means. He says, the one who builds the house on the rock is the one who comes to me, who hears my words, and who does them, who puts them into practice. Throughout Luke's gospel, throughout Luke chapter 6, there's lots of people coming to Jesus and hearing what he has to say. 
Yet now, as Jesus concludes his teaching in this chapter, he says, listen here, you've all come and you've heard, but that doesn't guarantee anything. You've got to be like the wise builder. You've got to come and hear, but you have to do as well. You've got to obey me. Now, I recognize that that word obey can be a bit contentious these days. For a lot of us, it's not a compliment to be called obedient. Teachers will praise kids to their parents saying, your child's such a leader. Your child's such a risk taker. They're gifted and talented. They're creatively disruptive. That's a new compliment that's out there. Your child is so obedient. That doesn't sound quite as good to a lot of us. Obedience school is for dogs. A friend of mine told me he was taking his hunting dog to a remedial obedience school. My wife, Cindy, immediately said, do they have one of those for husbands? <laughs> In short, for many people, the word obedience is associated with being a robot, being compliant, with being a weak-willed conformist. But that's not what Jesus has in mind when he says this. It, Jesus did not say, he did not say, I have come that you might be a weak-willed conformist and do whatever you're told by anybody for no good reason at all. That's not what Jesus said. So what does Jesus have in mind? Let me put it like this. In the eyes of Christ, there's no good reason not to do what he says because what he tells us to do is best. It's best just like the house built on the rock was the best. It is best when we act on the teaching of Jesus and make it the very foundation of our lives. It is best when we are merciful and forgiving, when we are generous with our time and our resources, it is best when we keep our commitments and tell the truth when we encourage people instead of gossiping about them. It's best when we love one another patiently, consistently, and even sacrificially. That's all stuff we hear Jesus saying. But do I act on it? Do I strive to practice it? Do we do that? Do we encourage and exhort one another in doing that? Imagine you get selected to be part of the greatest team in the history of athletic competition. The coach of this team is not just a strategic genius and an inspirational figure. He is deeply committed to your excelling. He says, I want you to do these drills and watch these tapes and study this playbook and practice these exercises and serve this team. But you say, no, 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 no. I want to be on the roster. I want to have the uniform. I want to wear the championship ring. I want to get all the endorsements, but I don't intend to do what you tell me to do. How ridiculous. You are shooting yourself in the foot. How long would you last on the greatest team in the history of the world? Which, by the way, is the Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> Gang, rightly understood, obedience to Jesus is like following that coach. It's about living the best possible life according to the one who created us, the one who is the author of our lives. It's about becoming a person radiant with goodness, full of peace, gentle and courageous, generous and kind in a world that is often harsh and graspy and unjust. True disciples recognize this, and they seek to put the words of Jesus into practice. Not perfectly. Nobody can do it perfectly in this life. Jesus' first disciples were far from perfect. Just remember St. Peter. They were often terrible disciples. But those knuckleheads learned, and they grew. And they came to follow Jesus and to obey him with greater consistency, and they changed the world. It's about progress, not perfection. Time to move on. I want to consider now that second criterion, that second measure of authentic discipleship. Our obedience to the way of Jesus comes from the heart. Comes from the heart. Let me put it another way. The obedience of the true disciple, it's not bald compliance. 
It's not external adherence to the rule book. It's not mechanical. To the contrary, it flows from deep within. It springs from a heart that is smitten with Christ. It springs from feelings and desires and intentions that are captivated by the majesty and the mercy of the living God. Look there again at verse 43 through 45. Jesus is comparing his followers, his disciples, to fruit trees. He says, if you follow me, you should have a fruitful life. That fruit in your life will reveal that you follow me. You begin to have my character. Your way of living begins to mirror the way that I lived my life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stay on the surface, focusing only on those externals. True fruit, the kind of fruit that God yearns for in us, it flows out of the tree. It has its source and healthy roots a vibrant internal life. You can't hang bananas on an apple tree and say that the apple tree is fruitful. Those apples have to grow out of the tree. That's real fruitfulness. And that's the memo of verse 45. Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of her heart will produce good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of their heart produces evil. Which means that when it comes to obeying Christ, to following the way of Christ, the heart is fundamental. The inner life is key, not just the external behavior. Are you a true follower of mine? Then tell me about your heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. Tell me about your heart. Incidentally, my doctor asked me that very same question last fall. I was having some chest pain. And as you might expect, I was a bit nervous about this appointment. But I became even more nervous when a friend of mine said to me, Oh, Roger, you'll be all right. You're not terribly obese. I didn't quite like the way he put that. Anyway, I went to the doctor, and, and she asked me about my family history. Any heart disease amongst your forebears? Gulp. In fact, yes. My grandfather died of a massive heart attack. My uncle had open heart surgery two years ago. I could see all the alarm bells going off inside of her brain because there is a genetic element to heart disease. In fact, it's quite widespread. It's all over the place. For all of us have inherited bad hearts started with the first human beings when they turned from God, when they pushed him to the sidelines to live for themselves. And ever since that time, every human has been born with a corrupted heart. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he liked to put things quite bleakly. He said, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. And it gets worse. Because according to the Bible, our hearts are beyond cure. There's not a pill we can take to overcome that corruption. There's not a surgery to get rid of it. In fact, there's nothing we can do about it. We have an insurmountable heart problem, and so we need new hearts, and without them, authentic discipleship is impossible. And this, my friends, is precisely why Christians praise God, the one who comes to give us new hearts. It's why we cling to Jesus Christ, the one who replaces our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. That's how the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel puts it. You see, the Jesus who is today teaching us, he's not just a teacher. He's not just one who diagnoses our heart problems. He's also a rescuer. He's a heart transplanter. He is the good physician. And that means that Christian life does not begin with, it is not ultimately sustained by what you do for God, by your outward actions. Oh, no. The wellspring, the source, the power of authentic discipleship lies in what God does for us and what Jesus does within us. It's about the heart. So how's your heart? It's a good question to ask yourself when you read this passage. How's your heart? In a lot of churches, talk about the hearts, about our inner lives can kind of get crowded out, pushed over on the margins. We like to focus chiefly on the externals, on the behavior. 
Now again, what we do matters. God makes that very clear. But unless our obedience flows from the heart, unless the fruit grows out of a life rooted in love and affection for Jesus Christ, then we're following him in the wrong way. So how's your heart? Is that something you'd like to talk about? If it's something you'd like to pray about, then I would love to do that with you. And there are lots of other people in this room I know who would love to do that with you too. In fact, we need to be doing this for each other. That needs to be our norm. Christ can touch your heart and he can touch it again. He's done that for me countless times and I hope he does it thousands of more times before I die. He can thaw it. He can warm it. He can fill it with a blazing fire of devotion and desire. And when Jesus does that, and as we respond by acting on his words, well then, we're disciples. We are people who have chosen above all else to follow this man, to identify with him and to act on what he says, to live as he would live if he were us, and to do that with creativity and initiative and zeal, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. May the Lord hasten and sustain this miracle of grace in our midst. As your pastor and as your priest, that will be my continual prayer for this church. I speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.